Gwen Uskford paces the woman's restroom at least 12 times, finally pressing her head against one of the cool stall doors. Her jacket is off, but the sweat won't stop coming. The wicker text, the one she's been staring at for the last eight minutes, is from Gal Vixen, official hacker handle GalVixen33. Click this link if you ever want to see your son again, it says. She's already called Anton's school. No one's seen him since lunch. Of course, it had to be today, a Friday, right before Halloween. The school would be an ocean of masks and costumes. Someone could have walked in and taken Anton in front of the principal herself, and no one would be the wiser. She checks the clock on her phone. Nine minutes now, there's no way out of this. The message will shred itself in less than a minute, and Vixen doesn't make empty threats. She has to click it. She touches her thumb to the screen and is sent to a site called LiveLead. Gwen is greeted by a video posted to a burner account, created with a temporary email, likely uploaded via Tor network, and routed through a proxy server in Portugal or something. There is no previous videos, only this one, which will have had all its metadata removed. The video's thumbnail is of a woman in a paper fox mask, with harsh geometric angles. It's Vixen's signature mask, but it's also a PDF that's been downloaded thousands of times in the last year alone. And behind Vixen, a blank black background, completely untraceable. She swallows and plays the video. Greetings, Colonel Uskford. I've been keeping tabs on your investigation into Conch with great interest. The federal government's embrace of psychopathy to influence the nation's subconscious is fundamentally criminal and unfathomably stupid. You've given these violent sociopaths freedom, but you claim they can be controlled. Freedom and control are mutually exclusive modes of operation. Control is exerted with force. I'll show you control. I own your phone calls, your texts, your emails, your Facebook posts, your Twitter, your pathetic attempts at data encryption. I own your case files. And now, I own your son. If you don't make major headway on this case, soon, your career will end. And your son's life will end. Find a way into the conch facility's basement, beneath the launch tunnel by 1800 tomorrow. Go alone. I'll know if you don't. Fivehead slams the door behind her and drags her chair loudly across the floor before plopping down across from Claire, steam almost visibly coming off her. All right, Slender Girl. No more dancing around answers. No mind games. How did you find out who the mole was? No need to get uppity. I was just getting to that part of the story. Claire chugs the rest of her Pepsi and sets it on the table in front of her. She takes out her keys and attaches the chain as a small pocket knife. Before Double Chin and Fivehead can voice their concern, she stabs into the Pepsi can and starts cutting it down the middle. You know, disappointed as I am that no one thought to take my keys, I'm so glad they put the red back in these cans. The blue was so... boring. Safe. Sorry, don't mean to be a bother, but can I get another one of these? I inherited my mama's sweet tooth. Miss Swanson... Just fucking do it, James. Double Chin grumbles but gets up from his chair. The door opens, then closes. Claire waits less than a second before setting the can on the table, red half cut away from the blue. Devorah and Marmoroth, they knew something was off. Jack, he's not usually careless, but when he is, 
<laughs> Fucking hotel. Anyhow, Jack tasked me with finding our mole, and on that mission, the mole just sort of fell into my lap. Right before everything went to hell. Mr. Magpie's flock is a choir of young girls' laughter. There's a beating and flapping of wings, and, as Mr. Magpie is cutting Claire off from her air supply, his flock cuts her off from her team. Oh, little bird, you have no idea what you've just unleashed. You think you're safe because you live in the real world? Oh, he'll rot away the barriers between our worlds, mark my word. And you'll pray for a fucking miracle. Only no one will hear you. Cause he will have gobbled up all the gods. Look. Look at what you've done. Magpie tightens his grip on her neck and swings her around to face the immense mountain crumbling in the distance. Claire braces herself, less out of concern than curiosity. And all too soon, Legio, the toxic colossus, begins to take shape, and Claire sees what Conch has done. A daddy long-legs kaiju with a tentacled face and eight eyes. It takes its first thundering, many-legged steps and lifts its body higher, blocking out the sun. Stag antlers protrude from its enormous head, though with all the dirt coming off it, she never quite sees the thing in its entirety. But everyone is watching Legio. She takes the opening and reaches out her arm, her long spade flying back into her hand. She slashes across her body, but Magpie jumps back with ease, dropping her in the process. He lunges forward and clamps his teeth onto her spade, and with an ear-splitting crunch and a beak full of sparks, bites off a large chunk of the metal, chewing it with a V-shaped grin. She drops the spade and backs away, hand going for the gun at her hip. Magpie scoffs and swallows, then turns his back to her, wings spreading to their full 40-foot span with a gust of wind that raises goosebumps on her neck. Magpie launches himself at Ralph, Peggy, and Simon, knocking them to the ground. He rears up, ready to bite into them. Blood erupts from the shoulders of all three of Claire's teammates. Claire taps the earpiece inside her mask and Octavia is silenced. Ralph, Peggy, and Simon begin to float up to the green sky as though pulled by long, invisible cables. Magpie glares at her, massive gun smoking in her hand. Clever, clever. But one day, Odile, there will be a reckoning. Conch and all its little toy soldiers will be held accountable for what they've done. Goodbye, little bird. May your life be long, torturous, and full of loss. He turns and flies away, his flock retreating after him. Claire taps her earpiece, and Octavia becomes audible once more. The mask fades into invisibility. Come in, Swanton. Copy that, mask clear. Christ, Swanton, you just got off probation for shooting a fellow agent in the field. I'm not gonna let bad news, Big Bird, eat my fucking team. And with respect, how is disenfranchising the locals not going to come back and bite us in the ass? I need you to have faith in Conch, Claire. We've certainly put our faith in you. Was that a mistake? Oh, please. Go fuck yourself with a splinter. Then make yourself useful. 
The ship port nearest the mountain should take you directly to the rendezvous point. You mean where that giant-ass Cthulhu spider is headed? Did y'all know that's what Pontiff was waking up? We needed a big distraction, Claire. Leisure just fit the bill, okay? And who in the name of fuck signed off on that? Get some perspective, Claire. Right now, Pontiff's team is dangerously behind schedule. So for now, store the questions, get inside the Library of Grudge, help them finish the porkless, and get everyone out of the Black City in one fucking piece. Think you can handle that? Yeah, copy that. She taps her earpiece and switches Octavia off. Bitch. Claire picks her long spade up off the ground, twirls it once in her hand, and sprints into the half-formed trees of the forest. You're listening to Dream State by Matt McCarthy. Produced by Tynan Media. Dream State is intended for mature audiences. Episode 3, The Dead Bird. Sometimes I really fucking hate it here. I swear the traffic's getting worse. I don't know how, but it is. Luke nods in agreement. It took way too long to get here. They are standing at the check-in desk, and the young, heavily made-up concierge is fidgeting in her seat, waiting for her boss to arrive. After another minute, Gabriela Mendez, mid-forties, dressed professionally, bursts loudly through a door behind the desk, causing the young concierge to jump a few inches out of her chair. Mendez shakes Luke's hand, then Nats, as they show their badges. Miss Mendez, thank you for seeing us. We're investigating a series of murders we believe may be a matter of national security. Are you the hotel manager? Of course. Anything I can do for the feds. Is this about Rosie Kennedy? Actually, this is about Amelia Targus. Remember her? Ms. Mendez covers her mouth, eyes wide. Does she have something to do with this? She eyes the concierge suspiciously. Maybe we should move into my office. She takes them through the door and down a hallway and through another door. Once in her office, Mendez sits down at her desk, her computer shiny and new, files and reports strewn across the rest of the desk. Sorry, I wanted us all to be able to speak freely. Amelia Targus was one of Mr. Meridian's special guests. Stayed in the penthouse suite every few months free of charge, off the books. She picks up a half-finished caramel frappuccino and slurps it loudly. Grace, the girl at the front desk. She was there when the man with the scar went up to see Miss Targus. Walked right by her blames herself. I shudder to think of how she'd take it if her inaction somehow contributed to the taking of Rosie Kennedy. Shudder to think. How did they know each other, Meridian and Amelia? You'd have to ask Mr. Meridian. I don't question his personal affairs. By chance, do you remember Amelia's profession? If memory serves, she worked for Big Pharma, a lobbyist, I think. Always brought this metal case with her. I never knew if it was full of legislation or samples. With Meridian, it could be either. Huh. It's funny, in your statement to the police, you stated she was a pharma assist. Mm, slip of the tongue. I amended my statement once the special unit took over. Isn't that in your records? What special unit? Suits. Nice suits. The Center for Neurology, something like that. Creep me out. But Mr. Meridian said they take care of everything, so... That raises her eyebrows at Luke. Thank you for your time, Miss Mendez. You've been very helpful. They both turn and walk out, past Grace at the front desk. Forget Golden Canyon. We're paying Meridian a visit now. 
But Meridian wasn't your guy. No, he wasn't. I mean, the director is guilty of a lot, but colluding with the Order? He was too much of a true believer for that. So, you've gotten to know Meridian fairly well over the course of this investigation. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I've worked with him, and I've seen the way he acts, and mostly it's just that, an act. But he's human. He has his weaknesses. Would you say the director displays any particular favoritism amongst his field agents? Oh, absolutely. He sees something real special in Slender Girl. Reminds him of someone he lost. Someone he loved. Makes him sloppy. Volatile. Gets in the way of his pragmatism sometimes. Can psychopaths even feel love? The ones at Conch do. Psychopaths are narcissists, and most are lone wolves. But together at Conch, they've formed a little family where they can just be seen without fear of judgment, for feeling and thinking and wanting things outside of society's moral code. Do you know how much that would mean to someone? Someone who's never felt like they can take off their person mask? The spy exploited that feeling of love, of kinship. How so? He knew about Meridian's ghost, Samantha Cambiar. The primary objective of Conch's mission that day, to implant an access point in the Library of Grudge, was... Sorry, the what? Oh, The library is a permanent fixture on the OP, a recurring place. It houses the largest collection of knowledge, memories, and experiences in existence. And where does the grudge part come in? I have no idea. What I do know is a large portion of the experiences it contains are those of the dead. Getting a team inside was a convenient pretext for getting Agent Gabriel McCreen inside. I don't follow. Why Gabriel McCreen? Because he could speak to the dead. I know that sounds crazy, but he could. Was he successful in reaching Samantha Cambiar? Who knows. But it kept McCreen busy enough for the spy to successfully complete his secondary objective. Which was... Digital infiltration. Conscious transliminal tech accomplished feats the Order has been grasping at and wrestling with for a millennia. The spy piggybacked off that and got the Order in in. But someone saw. An earth-shaking moan greets Claire as she springs past the last of the forest and comes upon the base of the fallen mountain. Between Claire and the vast wreckage of dirt and rock and rubble are two shift ports. She rushes to the one nearest the mountain, and the scene shifts around her. She emerges from the shift port behind a column supporting an archway on a set of immense front steps. The Library of Grudge is black stone and titanic in proportion, easily the size of a city, though how much larger can only be hinted at within Claire's limited field of vision. Another moan from Legio comes, deafeningly close. There is a host of shrieks and shouts nearby as well, one voice barking out incomprehensible commands, no doubt defending the Black City from the toxic Colossus. No sooner does Claire take a step toward the library, Then Ben Crow bursts through the front doors, sprinting and waving his arms, his big baby blue eyes bulging with panic. Go! 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 Where are the others? Visibly terrified, Ben tugs at her sleeves and pulls her back toward the shift port she just came out of. We know the cop! He's coming! Who is? Hesperus Pontiff bursts through the door next. His eyes, homicidal at first, soften when he sees Claire. He quickly regains his composure, holding the door for Gabe. Let's move, people! Claire, I saw him play a 
second door. Without another word, Ben pulls Claire through the shift port, and the scene morphs around them until they are at the base of the demolished mountain. We gotta go. I have to tell the director. Claire barely has a chance to catch her breath before Ben is herding her toward the next shift port. Wait, wait. Just, just shoot me. Send me back before Ponder catches up. Ugh, can't. Strict orders. What do you mean, a second door? Gabe was doing something else. I don't know, but Pontus... Pontus painted a second part left when he thought I couldn't see. It wasn't conscious. He's... Ben's eyes widen as Pontus and Gabriel come through the shift port after them. Come on! Ben pulls Claire through the next shift port. The scene morphs around them, and they are at the first glyph port, in the black desert sand where they came in. The port glyph itself still glows like a cattle brand beneath their feet. Claire points at the symbol, the three interlocking dreamcatchers. You mean it wasn't like this? No, it was all loops and circles within circles, and with no direct comm channel to dock, it couldn't- Octavia, shit! She frantically taps the headset back on as Ben reaches for his spade baton. Doc, don't cut me off like that shut up and bring us home. Not everyone's at the glyph port yet. Ben presses the spade against his wrist. But Claire grabs his hand to stop him. Would you rather redraw some blood? Just fucking do all it! Alright, alright! Keep your tits on! Right on cue, Pontiff and Gabriel come through the shift port. Gabriel confused, Pontiff livid. Ben's face falls as he, Claire, Gabriel, and Pontiff are all pulled into the air on their backs. The glowing lines of the port lift twist and writhe like tentacles, retreating up into the sky after them. Before Claire knows it, the lines are cables snaking around to the backs of everyone's skulls. As they float into the green, abyssal sky, their masks rematerialize. They are once again laying on the red leather of their beds in the launch tunnel. Claire and Ben yank their masks off, breathing heavily, while Gabriel and Pontiff do so more calmly. Growls of pain come from Peggy, Simon, and Ralph as their shoulders are bandaged by nurses. Well done, everyone. Congratulations on getting shot. Freckled Dr. Brandy Onkin, an actual doctor, is there in a white lab coat, checking the monitors by everyone's beds. And you hiss. Congrats on not dying. Thank you, Brandy. Gabe, Meridian wants you in his office right away for debriefing. Then you hiss. And you, Swanson. Claire nods, then exchanges a look with Ben from across the room. As she gets up to go... Dr. Onkin grabs her by the arm. Being the director's favorite won't protect you forever, slender twat. Miners just get paid a shite load of cash for their time. And when they have to clean up your mess, you're setting that money on fire. She gives Claire an empty-eyed smile and lets go of her arm. Don't make a habit of this. Hold on. Why were you even sent to the Black City? Well, Temple 2 didn't go quite as planned, did it? That's why we got stuck with Fitz and Schaefer and Parnas instead of someone named Cambiar. The Mayday mission was a step toward fixing that mistake, toward getting Samantha back. Why was she so important? To understand that, you have to understand the fundamental difference between Conch and the ODA. See, me and Crow and McCreen, we'd all heard rumors, whispers from techies and senior agents about the Order and how their approach to things deviates from ours. The center is filled with people who are all very aware, clinically, of what we are. A bunch of self-aware psychopaths? Charming. Claire tilts her head to one side, weighing the benefits and consequences of stabbing the colonel in her aorta and letting her life spray onto the floor in wave after galloping wave of hot blood. We have to be. 
Accepting that is part of the prelim training. Our approach is very scientific, but the order is more... How is the order connected to Sam Cambiar? They're not. But from what I heard, Samantha knew what she was and what she was doing. Her abilities weren't limited like ours. She tapped into the mystical, the magical, if you will. See, conscious technology is built to facilitate smooth passage to the Oniric plane, where we can all do our thing freely. The Order don't need that technology, which gives them an advantage over us. Temple 2 and Golden Canyon was all about leveling the playing field, but Samantha was killed in the process. And the post-mortem plane is beyond our tech capabilities. So Jack sent us down to plant a back door, establish a connection to Sam. Problem was, Crow walked in on Pontiff planting a second back door, which wasn't too good for his health. Was Meridian surprised at Pontiff's betrayal? Disappointed, maybe. But I don't think the director could ever be surprised at the masks that monsters wear. Jack is seated in a cushy, rolly chair. His legs up on his extremely tidy desk where nothing is askew. Behind his desk, a corkboard on the wall boasts a collection of flyers from a touring music festival called Temple, as well as flyers from the festival's second tour, Temple 2. A tall bookshelf boasts a number of psychiatric publications, NOLO legal references, scholarly journals, sacred religious texts, management titles, self-help books, and a number of classics including the complete works of Shakespeare. Tell me about the mission. What worked? What didn't? And what could have used improvement? Well, the shift ports were all perfect, of course. My team was exceptionally well-picked. Crow's firebug tendencies were quite useful, blowing the mountain and McCreen, using his post-mortem connection to get us in the library. I just love it when things come together. And what about you, Deputy Swanson? I hear you had some difficulty keeping your bullets to yourself. Again. Claire reminds herself that there's no need to get defensive. She acted appropriately. To be fair, Pika Forest was occupied by carnivorous birds the size of children. Their alpha, Mr. Magpie, was taller than you, Jack. He went after my team. I had to shoot him for their own protection. And what exactly do you think this Mr. Magpie was going to do? Peck at them? I shouldn't have to remind you that... Barring the transliminal effects of Honoranium... Wounds from the OP don't carry over. Except in the Black City, where the Destroyer lives. Pika Forest is miles from the Black City's outer walls. Claire takes her spade baton and tosses it onto the desk where it clangs and rolls dramatically. The tip has a significant chunk of metal missing where Magpie bit into it. Magpies eat anything. Jack picks up the baton and examines it. Pontiff looks on as well, his finger tapping anxiously. That close, I wasn't going to take no chances. Jack sets the baton back down on his desk, then slides it toward Claire. Pontiff picks it up and turns it over in his hands. Incredible. Maybe we should make it a point to avoid antagonizing the residents of the OP in the future. Jack's nodding is barely perceptible, his eyes glued to Claire's spade. And what the hell are we doing waking the Colossus up, Jack? The only person who can tame that thing is that guy Lord Duma, who, by the way, has been missing for seven years. So if he ain't there, how the hell are they going to get Legio back in the damn mountain? Jack meets her harsh gaze and doesn't blink. They're going to have to destroy him before he starts feeding in earnest. The fuck does something like that even eat? Gods. (laughs) Bullshit. Gods are all made up. You taught me that. Doesn't mean they're not real. 
They're as real as you or I, the Oniric Plane, and, unless they've been completely forgotten, they have very real agency in this plane of existence too. I would expect Slender Girl, of all people, to understand that. Okay, say he does eat a few gods. So what? Yes, don't they get replaced relatively quickly? Bastmet, the amalgam of Bast and Sekmet, Queen of Swords, she was replaced by a new Bastmet only about a decade ago. We need gods. Humanity needs gods, and we need gods. Just like any devil worth their fire. What makes you so sure the god-eating hell spider can even be killed? Because of who lives in the heart of the Black City, in the Obsidian Tower. As dusk approaches, a white limo drives along a narrow freeway and exits onto a mountain road. The limo pulls into a gravel parking lot and comes to a complete stop. A large wooden sign says, Welcome to Golden Canyon. The man in white gets out of the limo, phone to his ear, and walks past the sign onto the canyon trail. The other end picks up, asks what he wants. It's not every day I dial home, brother. You know why I'm calling. Did you see him do it? Destroy the Colossus. He is at a curve in the trail, and steps off it into the trees as he receives his answer. Oh, that sounds exquisite. And how is our child father? Poor thing all tuckered out yet. He steps over a fallen tree and under a low-hanging branch, scowling at what he hears on the phone. Still no! Huh. Legio didn't wear him out. He steps through several more trees in a thicket of brush, into a clearing covered in fallen leaves. There was a house here once. His cheerful demeanor curdles at what he hears on the phone, but he keeps walking until a muffled scream, close, stops him in his tracks. I'll get back to you. I'm about to walk into a meeting. He ends the call and slips the phone into the inner pocket of his coat. He peers ahead, and there's another muffled scream, along with the wet squidge of flesh being cut into. In front of him is a pale tree, the trunk splitting in two near the base. A woman nimbly jumps down from the branches covered in blood. She looks at him expectantly. The man in white pauses a moment to admire the woman's handiwork. You followed the instructions perfectly, my dear. Now don't forget the lesson. Captain James Tyndale gets the message on his phone before he's halfway to the soda machine. It's from Gwen. Vixen deaf connected somehow. Has Anton. Wants me in Conch basement tomorrow at 1800. Send recon team. Then bring Pepsi. Move fast. James swears under his breath and races to his office, bellowing to his secretary. Grace, call Patricia at Tactical. I want a team on their way to Conch HQ for a raid on the entire basement level. If they leave later than five minutes from now, it's your ass. But sir... No, text me when it's done. But... No, Grace, make this fucking happen. On his way back to the vending machine, he peeks his head into a large waiting room where the remainder of the field agents had sprawled across the furniture, awaiting their interviews. Tomorrow by 1800? There's still too many. No way they'll get through everyone. He shoves some quarters into the machine and says a silent prayer for Gwen's son. You know, I seen him another time too, the man in white, just before this little witch hunt y'all are pulling. Wants you to make a delivery for him, Colonel. The red light on the camera begins flickering, and the overhead light strobes erratically. Five Head is suddenly laser-focused on Claire. 
When you find your target, deliver this message exactly. However much you fuck it up, so your son will be when he's returned Anton, to you. What the fuck do you know about All me? All I know is what I've been told. As above, so below. You're wasting time, Colonel. You want to argue some more, or are you going to pay attention? Good. Every word matters. Beneath the empty throne where the Empress surrendered to chains, there are the flightless feathers hidden. Blazing deep in a begrudging crypt, there burns the first fire sold for spite. Dancing from mouths of children at play, there is the mirror the villain can't see, though his faces amount to the same. She leans back in her chair and picks up her knife, digging the tip beneath her nails. Fivehead is dazed, in shock, muttering the words back to herself beneath her breath. Hope you got all that. The door opens and Double Chin returns, depositing another Pepsi on the table. The video camera's red light stabilizes. Mighty kind of you. Now, if we haven't forgotten anything... Actually, Claire, I was hoping I could talk to you about a personal matter. Hess, thank you again. Pontiff's face is a mask of calm. He nods, turns, and exits the office. There's something you've been holding in since you sat down, Claire. What's going on? The fact that Jack notices when something's wrong makes her cheeks tingle and her chest swell. Sir, it's about Pontiff. I think he's involved with something dangerous. I think he's dangerous. Luke is in the passenger seat. A purple bruised sunset stains the highway passing outside his window. He pours obsessively over the hotel security stills and pauses on the man with the scar. Think Scarface here has anything to do with Golden Canyon? With Conch? Well, logic walk with me. If Amelia Targus booked a few nights every month to meet with Meridian, which she did, and if she then opened her door willingly to Scarface, which the footage shows us she did, then it stands to reason that Amelia knew him and that he knows Meridian. The cushy sound of air hissing signals the opening of the control room door. Octavia spins her chair away from her console. Hesperus is there, approaching with a warm smile. Hey, Hess, what's up? You know, I was hoping to go over my perception feed from when I was in the library. Octavia spins around in her chair, and her fingers begin flying over the keys at her terminal. Sure, let me just pull that up for you. For a split second, there is a slight weight on the back of her head, then a smashing pain at the front of her skull, then black. Is Pontiff our mole? Might be. Ben saw him paint a second port cliff. Symbol wasn't ours. That's why they were taking so long. Does Pontiff know Ben saw him? Pontiff was chasing him. Pretty sure that's why. Damn it. Jack stands, gritting his teeth. Claire stays silent, awaiting orders. Slowly, a mischievous grin blossoms across Jack's cheeks, and he flicks his wrist, springing a switchblade into his hand. Jubilant, he makes the blade dance between his fingers. Come on, we can still catch him. He only left a minute ago. Permission granted, Claire stands and unstraps the gun on her hip. A smirk steals the right corner of her mouth. Besides, I haven't had a good hunt in months. Jack pulls a fire alarm on the wall, and yellow lights begin flashing, along with a blaring siren. Cover me. 
stumbles into a parking spot in the lot outside the facility, still logic-walking Luke through the evidence. And if Scarface knows Meridian, he knows Conch. A large sign in front of the facility indicates they are now at the center for Oniric Neurological Capacity Harnessing. Luke notices the incongruity between Conch's actual acronym and the one Secretary Kinfield gave earlier, but he says nothing. The facility itself could pass for a state-of-the-art medical building, at least from the outside, and there are yellow lights blinking above the front doors. Luke draws his gun as they step out of the car. I think it's high time we got to know them too. Nat draws her gun as well, clicking the safety off, then stares at the sign for several seconds. The fuck does Oniric mean? Jack stalks down Conch's hallways, switchblade in hand. Claire is several paces behind, gun drawn, eyes focused as the yellow lights flash and the alarm blares. Employees rush out of doors and move towards the exit. Kagami emerges from the chaos and approaches them. Sir, what's happening? Light Agent Crow and get him someplace safe. Kagami nods, drawing her baton, then heads off in the opposite direction. Luke and Nat approach Concha's front doors, guns drawn. The doors burst open and employees come pouring out, many in fancy suits, several in lab coats, most in typical professional attire. Those who notice Luke and Nat put their hands up, but continue to move with the river of people. As Luke stands there, things begin to wobble, the way things did when he had the plague mask on in the first daughter's limo. The strobing yellow lights add to the effect. Sounds are muffled and echoey and make him a little nauseous. He lowers his weapon and squats, dizzy. He may vomit. It builds for a few seconds, then seems to pass. Sound returns, along with his equilibrium. He needs his fucking Seroquel. Matt's hand is on his back. Luke, are you okay? She's got the strangest, visceral sensation that I was on a precipice. Claire and Jack come upon the glass door to the control room, left ajar. He signals her to be ready, then ducks down and approaches. She aims dead ahead, and after a quick glance back at her, Jack bursts in. Trigger finger itching, Claire follows a few paces behind. Lumped on the floor next to the control terminal, blood trickling from a head wound, is Octavia. Jack runs over and clamps his teeth on the tip of his glove's middle finger, pulling until his hand is free. He reaches down and checks Octavia's pulse at her neck. She's alive. More than I can say for that scar-faced motherfucker once we find him. Kagame Sakayume fights the tide of conch employees in the hallway, determined to check the locker room for Ben. It's been over a year since the boy burned his parents alive, but he still comes here sometimes, to be alone. She runs past row after row of lockers until finally she spots him, huddled in a corner, making himself as small as possible. She grabs a hold of his shoulder and tugs him up. Come on, let's get you out of here! She runs with Ben to the door of the locker room and nearly smashes, headfirst, into Hesperus Pontiff. Kagami shoves Ben toward him. Get him somewhere safe! Meridian's orders! Pontiff grabs Ben by the shoulder and dives into the crowd, disappearing. And the precipice is the edge of a rabbit hole that goes far deeper than I imagined into darkness, misanthropic, and sadistic, and calculated. And maybe if I turn around now, 
this won't be my story. Maybe this is always what the fates had in mind for me. Nat slaps him hard across the cheek, then clamps his face in a death grip. Snap the fuck out of it. I need you on your A-game if we run into Meridian or Slender Girl or Scarface. Luke's eyes go wide at something behind Nat. She turns towards Concha's front doors and sees their man with a scar step outside. His lavender tie is tucked into a gray vest, and his sleeves are rolled up, hands and forearms covered in blood. Fedaye! Put your hands on your head and get on the ground! The man sees them in bolts, sprinting through the parking lot toward the far end of the facility. Fedaye! Freeze or I will shoot you! Nat fires, misses, and moves to follow, but Luke bursts ahead of her full throttle. <laughs> Not on my watch, you scar-faced fuck. The sun tucks itself beneath the horizon as Luke and Nat race away from the facility entrance across the parking lot. The sound of concerned conch employees dies away, and the alarm dominates the cool May air, echoing around the empty lot in steady pulses, the silence in between filled with the staccato of racing footsteps and panting breath. Luke chases the man around the back of the facility, only a few yards behind. He's going to catch him. But once around the corner, when Luke has eyes on him again, the man is closing the back door of a white limo, nearly 30 yards ahead. Nat turns the corner behind Luke as he slows to a halt, lowering his gun. The limo drives away, and he watches it go, helpless. God damn it! The hell did he go? Call it in. We need locks on every road going in and out of this place. And every road that connects with those roads. And every road that connects with those... No way that fucking limo's getting out of here. Stowing her gun, Nat follows his gaze, then looks back at him, curious. What limo? Luke looks again. Nothing is there. Okay, seriously, you've been disoriented all day and just... Luke can tell she's trying to find words that are kind. Are you sure you're up for this case? There was a limo. A white one. Like the mysterious man in white you saw earlier? Well, you explain where the fuck Scarface disappeared to! The yellow alarm light is still flashing when they get back to the front entrance, but the main lights are on as well. A young man's body is at the foot of the reception desk, his throat cut, abdomen and arms soaked, a small crimson lake pooling around him. He has crisp blue eyes and a youthful face, baby fat still clinging to his cheeks. His curly bleach blonde hair is brittle with product. There are two TV monitors on the wall behind reception one playing a conch PR video on a loop, the other playing the news. Across the room, Slender Girl is helping a young woman with slicked back dark hair and glasses attend a head wound. A tall ginger in need of a shave is speaking to both the girls in hushed tones. Just beneath the TV monitors, Director Meridian is shouting at Deputy Sakayume, who betrays she is distraught only by the clenching of her jaw and a glossiness in her eyes. This fucking disappointed in you. You made this mess. You want to lead someday? You clean it up. And will someone please turn that goddamn alarm off? The girl with greased back hair brushes Slender Girl away once the bandage is secure and comes to Jack's aid, clicking away at the reception's computer. Her eyes flicker towards Sakayumi discreetly, though indiscreetly often. After a second, the siren is silenced, though the yellow lights keep flashing. There is a ringing in Luke's ears, through which the quiet din of the news is barely audible, promising to keep viewers updated on the abduction of Rosemary Kennedy as the story unfolds. And where the hell is the fire department? They have one simple job. When I pull the alarm, show the fuck up! 
The director pauses in his tracks when he sees Luke and Nat. They both lower their guns, but Luke is hesitant to put his away. Meridian's phone buzzes in his pocket, but the director pays it no mind. <sighs> Officers, you picked a hell of a day. Luke's phone also begins to buzz, but he doesn't reach for it either. He doesn't want to put his gun away, even though Nat already has. No, director. We didn't pick this day. It picked us. Each and every one of us. Nat's phone also begins to buzz, but before she can answer, there is a gasp from one of the agents. <gasps> Deputy Swanson is covering her mouth, eyes wide on the TV monitor. She scrambles over to the reception desk and finds the remote. On the screen, a news anchor stands in front of a sign welcoming visitors to Golden Canyon. A volume meter appears on the screen, bars increasing. Canyon here in Los Angeles County, where reports are coming in that Rosemary Kennedy has been found. Official sources have yet to say whether the nation's prayers have been answered, so for now, we hope you'll join us in continuing to pray that the president's daughter will be returned safely. Luke can feel Nat's eyes burrowing into the side of his face. Fuck me. Yeah, fuck you is right. If she were alive, they'd be showing footage of her in a blanket, surrounded by paramedics and... Next time we follow my lead first. Her phone buzzes again, and Luke watches her face fall. What is it? Nat, who's it from? She hands him the phone in response, and he reluctantly holsters his gun. The text is from Cat Wild, under Secretary for Homeland Science and Technology Division. In the photo is a pale tree, the trunk splitting in two at the base, like a giant V. Rosemary Kennedy's arms are raised, her wrists and ankles tied with electrical wire to the diverging trunks. Something is carved into her chest, and the only thing she's wearing is underwear. An eagle skull tattoo ornaments her right hip. She must have gotten it in secret, or it would have been in the tabloids by now. The flesh from Rosemary's back has been cut open and spread apart behind her, like angel wings, or the wings of a dead bird, held in place by more electrical wire and what appear to be fish hooks. Floodlights shine through the tree's branches, giving the entire tableau an aura of violent serenity. Zooming in, Rosie's eyes are smeared and runny with black makeup, what Luke's wife Audrey calls raccoon eyes, but the makeup looks like it's been deliberately smudged around her eyes, like a burglar mask. Starting just beneath her eyes are long, bloody wounds carved in the shape of a V, coming to a point at her chin. It's hard to tell, but her throat is slit too. Scrolling down, Luke sees the message cut into her flesh. Find Gregory Blythe. Dizziness hits him over the head like a falling piano. No. 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 No, 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 no. He drops Nat's phone, then lurches toward the front doors, fumbling in his coat pocket. But he needs air. He needs... Luke, what the fuck? Are you okay? He pushes her away and careens through the entrance. Once outside, he can breathe again. And, after much digging, the familiar glossy cardboard is between his fingers. He glances quickly around to make sure no one is watching, then pulls out the tarot card. On the illustrated side, finger painted in blood over the magician's face, is the letter V. And the infinity symbol above the magician's head has been traced as well, just like the makeup on Rosie Kennedy. The blood definitely wasn't there before. It wasn't. It fucking wasn't. 
Luke flips the card over, and still, all he can do is verbally deny that this is actually happening. No. Not again. Not this. The blood on the back of the card asks the question he's been running from for almost a decade. What is the Hydra? Behind him, Nat pushes Conch's front doors open, and Luke puts the magician away for the time being. Luke, whatever's going on with you, right now I need you to man the fuck up and stow it. Oskford and Tyndale are already at the scene with Cat Wild. I think Meridian should ride with me, you stick with Slender Girl. I know I've got questions, and the trip to Golden Canyon will provide plenty of time to ask them. Luke nods, trying to breathe normal, but he can't bring himself to speak. He's afraid of hyperventilating. Nat puts her palm to the side of his face, a tender gesture. He may be losing his shit a little, a lot, but she still cares. Nat still cares, and somehow that's enough. His breathing steadies and he stands up straight. Come on, traffic's gonna be terrible. Everything's gonna be terrible from now on. Whoever did this wasn't after leverage. They didn't even open a dialogue, this is about vengeance. And more than vengeance, this is about sending a message. This is about cruelty, savagery, evil. And it's just getting started. Dream State Episode 3 was written and directed by Matt McCarthy and featured the additional talent of Kate Newman, Sarah Jo Elise, Shantae Godlock, David Bethka, Adria Young, Laurel Rankin, Anne Parma, Marissa Spokes, Eric Malcolm Shriek, Slade James, Eon Song, and Nicholas Ramsey. Music and sound design by Matt McCarthy. Extra special thanks to our Patreon supporters for helping to make this episode possible, especially Mariah McCarthy, Eric Wolford, Robin Macias, Caitlin Litsheim, and Lucinda Nicholas. Dream State will always be an ad-free audio drama, but if you would like to give back, help us cover expenses, and help us pay our extremely talented actors, please head over to patreon.com slash dreamstate. As a patron, you can get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes extras, music, as well as other exclusive content. Thank you so much for listening. Dream well. Dream well.